1: On capetalk.co.za, on the app, on DSTV channel 885, and across the
0: city on 567 AM.
1: Join the conversation.
0: This is Cape Talk. This is Cape Talk. And from 9 to 12 on Cape Talk, it is the morning review with Lester Kivit. But for today, you have me, Abongile Thank you so very much uh, for tuning in. And we are taking your voice notes on 0725671567. We're taking your calls on 0214460567 because the one and only, the champion, Dr. Chris Smith, is in the house. I had to do that, Doc. I, if you, if you, if you, I, I liked to it. I liked way. it. I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, joins you now to answer some of your uh, science-related questions. First question says, Naked Scientist, please. Uh, are there animals that must stand and sleep? And do fish sleep?
1: As far as we can tell, pretty much everything sleeps. And would you believe it? even bacteria have body clocks? in the same way that we have a chemical clock ticking away inside every cell in our body, give or take, that is widespread across nature. And so there are patterns of activity and lower levels of activity in almost every living thing. And they're tethered to sunlight for obvious reasons, because the main energy input to the planet is the sun, and so most life revolves around the sun and the sun cycle, and therefore a 24-hour day. So yes, most animals do have periods of activity and enhanced activity, lower levels of activity. But whether it is on the same sort of pattern that we would follow, where we go to bed for eight hours and get up, that differs. And it differs according to what sort of animal you're talking about and where those animals are. For instance, reindeers, people have done studies on them up in the Arctic and because they have long periods of time when the sun never sets and then long periods of time when the sun never rises, if you had a body clock that was purely stapled to what the sun was doing, then you would have a very, very confused body clock by the time the summer ended in the Arctic. So some animals have divorced themselves from the sun cycle and they just have a different pattern of time but they still sleep nonetheless so yes the answer is pretty much all animals do sleep fish do sleep and in fact when i lived in australia i inherited some fish that someone gave me in their tank and there were fish that at the end of the day would just sink to the bottom and sit on the bottom of the tank and one of them was one of those discus fish that looked like a, a sort of circle swimming around and it would land on the bottom and flop over to one side and stay there until the morning and then turn the lights on and it would come back up again it was really extraordinary so, yes, they, mm. these animals do, do sleep. And, of course, if posture dictates that an animal is better off standing up, then it will stay standing. And there's a reason why it would be good to sleep standing up for some animals. Because, for instance, if you're likely to fall victim to a predator because it takes you a long time to get up when you wake up, then actually you would have evolved not to do that and those animals would stay standing so some animals sleep in that way other animals have evolved not to fall asleep with all their brains so for instance animals that live in the ocean where were you to fall asleep and sink you would drown they can actually deactivate half their brain and rest that at one time and then once that half of the brain has been rested they can switch to the other side of the brain that remains vigilant so they can sleep that half so range of different ways of sleeping but it is a fundamental thing we're all tethered to time whether you're a bacterium, a fungus or a human
0: we've got Frida in Belleville on the line good morning Frida what's your question for the good dog?
1: Uh, hello yes I've noticed as I got older
0: that my voice I used to have quite a low voice and it seems that it's gone higher up now as I got older I wonder if it happens to everybody and what causes it and if it also happens to men.
1: Hi, uh, Frida, Thanks, the answer is Excuse yes, that, that uh, in all of us, Our tissues change as we age. The composition of fibrous and elastic tissue in our skin changes, which is why we tend to get wrinklier as we get older and a bit saggier here and there. The amount of fat that's deposited in the tissue changes, and tissues also just atrophy and become overall thinner. And this will change their elastic and strength properties. And the way your vocal folds work and the way also that your mouth and tongue works, it's all based on the same tissues. And we we speak and make sounds by making pressure changes in the air that's coming out of our lungs through our vocal folds or vocal cords. And then we move our tongues around, our lips around, our mouths around to resonate or amplify certain frequencies. So anything that changes that anatomy or changes the way the vocal folds work and how well they work will change the quality and timbre of your voice and so you do tend to find that people over a certain age will say well I've noticed my voice is changing a bit in some people they'll find that their voice becomes readier or thinner in other people they'll say that other characteristics change but it's certainly just part of the aging process in the same way that we look in the mirror and we don't see staring back at us the 12 year old or the two year old that we we once were we see someone upon whom life experience has been superimposed and it's the same on the inside as well Here's a voice note for you, Doc.
0: Uh, Good morning, Abs. Uh, You're insisting on questions now, and here's my question for for, for Chris Smith. Every morning, just before sunrise, just before the sun comes over the mountain, uh, we live in the deep south, so the sun comes over from the east in the mountain here, the temperature drops. Why? And we also noticed that if the sun's been behind cloud and it's a coolish day, uh, just before the sun breaks through the clouds, the temperature seems to drop. Uh, is that a figment of our imagination or is that a reality? If it is a reality, please, Chris, could you explain why the temperature drops just before the sun uh, hits us? Thank you very much.
1: Oh, well, I like, like the little sound effect at the end there. That's good. We'll have more of them. The answer to this is, stepping back from this and thinking, well, where does the energy on the Earth come from? Why is the Earth warm at all? Well, it's warm because the sun puts energy into the Earth. So, if you think about it in the most logical sense, just before the sun rises, it's the longest time since it was last shining, and therefore it is the longest time since the Earth last got warmed up. So automatically you would expect the time just before the sun rises to be a bit colder anyway. But then also consider that what does the sun do to the temperature of the air and the pressure of the air that it's warming up around the planet? Well, when you've got the sun shining on the Earth's surface and being absorbed and that heat that it's transferring to the Earth's surface then being transferred to the surrounding air, you will increase the pressure of the air. And when you increase the pressure of a gas or change the pressure of a gas, you will make it move. It will move from an area of higher pressure towards areas of lower pressure. So when the sun first begins to shine, one of the reasons why it feels paradoxically colder is because it takes time for the ground to warm up and then start to transfer that heat and re-radiate that heat at you and you're still surrounded by cold, clammy air. But nearby, other areas will have been illuminated by the sun warmed by the sun and their air is busy expanding and moving and as a result you're redistributing air around a bit more than it was previously and that air will be cold so it will feel a bit colder before it starts to feel a bit warmer when the sun first begins to rise
0: we continue with the naked scientists of the show this morning if you have a question do send it forward and um, here's one uh, that says, okay, in fact, no, it is not a question. It's more of a voice note uh, that we are going to be uh, bringing back to you. I just want to remind the listeners that once again, on 567 that is the number. Uh, here's the question for you. It says, why is it when I am in a plane and when the plane takes off the ground, I feel this discomfort, this pain in my ears? The second flight, a passenger sitting next to me gave me chewing gum and said I must chew it every time the plane takes off and lends to avoid feeling the pain. What is the science behind this? This is from uh, Ashford in Debenville.
1: Hi Ashford. The answer is this is a sensation or a phenomenon very familiar to scuba divers. And it's called a squeeze. And it's all to do with pressure changes. The ground or ground level, we are subject to one atmosphere of pressure. In other words, there's about 50 to 100 kilometres of air above our head pressing down on us, giving us air pressure. When you get in an aeroplane... And it takes off. They do pressurise the cabin, but they don't pressurise it to ground level. They pressurise it to a height of a few thousand, five thousand, ten thousand feet, which is perfectly OK for the vast majority of people. But it's a lower pressure than at the ground. And there are various reasons why they do that. And it's to do with the strength of the airframe and so on. But what that means is that as you take off, if you've got air in your ears and your, your middle ear, which is behind your eardrum and in front of your inner ear, which is where your cochlea is, there's a space of air there. If you've got air there, which is at atmospheric pressure at ground level, as you go up and the plane cabin pressure drops, the amount of air being squeezed in on you is going to drop. But if that air in the middle ear is still at atmospheric pressure, then it's going to feel less force Being squeezed by atmospheric pressure, it's going to expand. And as it expands, it's going to press painfully on the tissues around it, including in your ears, in your nose, and so on. There is a tube called the eustachian tube, which is at the back of your nose, running through into that cavity in the middle ear. But it can be small. And if you've had a cold it can be blocked by mucus and in some people other things such as the aging process, growths or polyps and things can block the eustachian tube partially or in some cases completely. And this means it's much harder for air to travel out of the middle ear back to the back of your nose and equalize the pressure. But if you chew something the chewing movements and maneuvers of your jaw moving backwards and forwards do help to open the opening or aperture of the eustachian tubes at the back of your nose a bit more and this can help the air at higher pressure in your middle ear to flow into the back of your nose and equalize the pressure and so when divers are doing a deep dive they've actually got the reverse problem when they're going down they're actually feeling water pressing in on the air in their middle ear which is being squeezed more and so they hold their nose and blow out through their nose against the obstruction. And this forces air into the middle ear and expands it, equalising the pressure. And when they come up again, that's why you must breathe continuously using scuba gear in order to make sure you do equalise correctly. And you can move your jaw around as well to avoid the reverse happening. So it's as though you're being a diver, but you're diving in air rather than diving in water.
0: And it's something that I I I get also personally when a plane is taking off, I'll feel a bit of pressure, but when it's landing, my goodness, it's unbearable at times, and I do drink some water and chew uh, gum. But the interesting thing is uh, my daughter has also got it now, but her mother doesn't have it. So it, it ha- it, I suppose it differs, like you said, from individual to individual. I yeah, just thought it was interesting. Right. Uh, it's it's to going to mention. be an
1: anatomical thing and also an acquired thing because as we age, the shape and structure of everything can change a bit and various things can happen to the internal anatomy. But also if you get colds and coughs, the, the mucus can clog up those pathways and it can make it much more difficult for that equalisation process to happen and it's pretty painful. And that's why you often hear little kiddies, little little toddlers will, will scream and squeal when planes take off and land, not just because of the noise but because they're much more susceptible to getting colds and also they're smaller so their anatomy might not be completely fully developed in that area and they may be more prone to obstructions in their eustachian tubes so they're more susceptible to that effect happening so if you hear a little kitty squealing a bit on your flight and you're thinking oh goodness i hope that's not going to go on for the whole flight spare a thought for a the poor parents who are close to the kitty because they've got it louder than you have but also reassure yourself it will probably stop because as soon as the, the child does scream and squeal a bit it's helping to do its own equalization and the problem will go away
0: Hi, Doctor. Do animals like dogs and cats recognise their siblings? I have two puppies from a litter and they get along well, but are hostile to my older dog, a year older than them. That's from Anthony in Maitland.
1: Dogs, especially, and also cats, live in a world not so much dominated by vision like we do, but by smell. And so when you first greet a dog or a dog first greets you, you might think it's looking at you, but in fact it's much more interested in sniffing you. And dogs, as well as many other animals, recognise smell in a far more acute way than we do, and they can pick you apart and and extract many more features about you from what you smell like than what you look like. Animals use this in the wild to recognise friend from foe and kin from foreigner. And mice, for example, produce all kinds of interesting smell molecules in their urine, which are Uh, used in order to tell who you're related to and who you're not so mice will preferentially mate with mice that smell as different to them as possible to mix up their genes so dogs will very easily be able to tell a their family members and and owners in other words the family they live with from people who don't live in that house straight away they will also be able to tell who's related to them and who isn't by how they smell as well which is probably why they recognize their their close relatives and they may have animosity towards dogs that they regard as outside their pack because they, they smell wrong. Don't forget that also dogs and, and cats have a social structure that, that is all about dominance as well. So there'll be a, a, a pack leader. And if you've got two males, then they may argue over who's in charge. And this usually comes down to you know a fight for who's who's going to push the other one out. So there may be an element of that in there as well.
0: Another one says, uh, Dr. Chris, why
1: is yawning contagious? That's from John. Well, we don't know for sure, but there are some theories. And one of the intriguing ones was put forward by Gordon Gallup, who's a researcher in New York. And he did some interesting experiments on students to show why this might be the case and he thinks it's all about the temperature of your brain. The experiment they did was to take a bunch of students, not tell them that they were in a yawning study but ask them to watch some films and in the first set of experiments they watched footage which contained incidentally images of people yawning and they counted how many times the students yawned in sympathy and the students did this in one of two conditions, either they held their mouths open all the time while they were watching the footage or they held a cold compress on their head. Now, when they had their mouths open, the rate of yawning in sympathy with the footage was very high, nearly 100%. When they had the cold compress on their head, the rate of yawning in sympathy, contagious yawning, was almost zero. So Gordon Gallup speculates that this is something to do with temperature and his speculation is that when we keep a cold compress on our head then we cool the the brain and when we get very tired we tend to have a higher brain temperature and that is also associated with feeling sleepy so we yawn to cool the blood vessels around the head and in indirectly therefore help to bring down brain temperature and promote more alertness and arousal so it might well be that from an evolutionary standpoint, if you're all hanging out together and you're all feeling tired together and everyone's brain temperature has gone up and they're all fatigued and everyone wants to drop off, if you make yawning contagious, then if one person is feeling sleepy, it's likely another person is feeling sleepy. So therefore, if everyone yawns together and cools their brains down, it brings everyone's level of overall alertness up and, then f- and therefore at least someone's likely to stay awake and spot the predator coming in the dark who's trying to eat you.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I wish I was part of that study or I wish I was watching those people uh, yawning in sympathy. Uh, Dr. Chris once says, the dog question got me thinking. Do dogs especially uh, get depressed? Our puppy we got uh, a couple of years ago was fine for a couple of days Then all of a sudden, he refused to eat and was very quiet. My partner decided to take him to visit his mum and other siblings. After that visit, all was okay with him.
1: Animals do have moods. Obviously, we can't ask them how they're feeling, but we can use many of the same measures that we would look at in a patient presenting to us with potentially low mood. And we can see many of the same manifestations. Anxiety, repetitive behaviours. The withdrawal from participating in in play, not wanting to eat, eating the wrong things, chewing things up. These are the same sorts of behaviour that you see in children and in adults that have mood disorders. And so it's not surprising given that the structures of our brains are very similar between a dog and, and us. We're just slightly bigger brained in many people's cases. Some I've met, not so sure. But also the, <laughs> the, the chemistry of the brain is very, very similar between us and a dog and even a mouse, actually. And so unsurprisingly, if you take an animal, which is a pack animal, dogs are really social. They're also clever. And if you put them in an environment where they feel stressed, where they don't feel at home, you divorce them from uh, the the love they crave, from the socialisation that they crave, having evolved to be amongst a pack of, of others. And when you have a dog in your family, you are it's it's pack by proxy. You are replacing the pack of dogs it would normally be hanging out with. If you divorce a dog from that situation or you subject it to stress and that kind of thing you will put it into a similar mindset as a person who's feeling particularly stressed either at work or school or something's gone wrong in their life and unsurprisingly the the dog will feel down if you show your dog love, and you. And in my dog's case, you just give it food, anything you know, food. Do anything for food. It's Labrador, but if you give it food, love, attention, play, stimulation, then the dog doesn't get bored because dogs get bored easily, and and boredom can breed discontent as well. The dog will be happy, fulfilled, and feel loved, and and then its mood will elevate. And we also see this with simple animals, simpler animals like mice. I mean, if you if you put a mouse on its own in a cage and keep a pet mouse, then and it will be much less happy and it will play less and it will look like it takes less care of itself than if you put it in with a bunch of other mice that it likes to hang out with because they are sociable animals.
0: Thank you so very much. we got got one last question from Anton in uh, Fishhook. Anton, good morning. Hi there, hi there. Hi, Dr. Chris. Thanks for a great program. I listen to you religiously. Um, <laughs> why is the nominal temperature of a human being 37.2 degrees? and one walks into a room, which is also 37 degrees, say, so why does it feel so darn hot? <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Well, actually, interestingly, someone did a study, I spoke to this person a couple of years ago, where she'd got hold of the medical records from thousands of people going back 100 years to the you know, UK Victorian era. And she'd done this in a range of places, and a range of countries. And people's temperatures now are lower than they were 100 years ago and you might think you what?" but on average people's temperatures were lower and this is because we think the burden of disease and inflammation and infection in the population was much higher 100 years ago than today people are cleaner healthier hygienic and as a result their temperatures are a bit lower but the reason that uh, a an environment at the same temperature as us feels very hot and a bath would do the same thing wouldn't it if you get in a bath which is nowhere near body temperature it still feels pretty darn hot and the reason for that is that we are warm-blooded in other words we are making energy and heat through our metabolism all the time and this means that we and, and bigger animals than us have a problem how do we not overheat and the way that we overheat The way that we avoid overheating is we have heat loss mechanisms. We are radiating heat away from us into the environment. We are sweating and evaporating water from our skin to keep our, our body temperature correct. We're diverting blood close to the surface of our skin to enhance that effect or the reverse in order to stay warm. All of those mechanisms are set up to keep us at the right temperature in an environment where it's colder than we are. And so as you get into an environment where you approach body temperature, the rate at which you're able to lose heat to the environment is going to drop. And this means your body temperature is going to climb more or try to climb more, so the body's having to work harder to lose more heat. And that includes all those mechanisms that I mentioned. And so because we are in danger of overheating, we find it uncomfortable as we push the local temperature up because we find it harder to get rid of the excess heat that our metabolism is producing.
0: Doc, one last voice note for you in just under two minutes, because I am running out of time. I but have watch a listen- the clock. Hi, Doctor Chris. Why is it that the person who snores never wakes up, but he can wake up the yeah. whole household?
1: Well, there is a part of your brain which actually is involved in suppressing anticipated incoming inputs. So, in other words, if you tickle somebody and you surprise them by doing it, they will find that excruciating. But if you tickle yourself. You can't do it because you know that that sensation is going to come in. So your brain discounts it and ignores it. I think that with snoring, because you know you're doing it and you know it's going to happen and you're used to it. Your body is anticipating, your brain is anticipating these noises coming in. There's nothing to be frightened of. I'm not going to find this an alarming thing. I'm not going to wake you up. Whereas another person doesn't know when you're going to snore. They don't know that that's not a danger signal. So that part of the brain does not discount the incoming snore signals in them and they wake up.
0: Doc, thank you so very much for that. Dr. Christmas, the naked scientist. (laughs) I like the one with the snoring, Doc. Thank you so very much. Have a lovely day.
1: Have a good one. Bye-bye. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray.
0: And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect.